Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 6? We will, last week, covered two chapters. This week, we'll slow back down a little bit and just do uh, eight verses before we uh, pick back up uh, in in the coming weeks. But you'll see when we get into the midst of uh, these verses um, why uh, we are slowing here uh, to consider these. As you uh, get your notes out and get yourself settled, let me just give you a quick update uh, on what's going to happen two weeks from today, which is when we have scheduled for uh, church at the park. We've, we traditionally, if you're new with us, uh, take over Bennett's Creek Park, which is a uh, public park not far from here. Um, every spring, it's normally three weeks after Easter, and have an outdoor service where we have a picnic and everybody's invited, people come from the community. Uh, it's, a, it's a great day uh, for us to worship outside. Well, because of coronavirus, we moved that to uh, the end of the summer. It is still currently scheduled. However, if the governor does not take Hampton Roads out of timeout, uh, we're not going to be able to have it at the park because the park is uh, limited to gatherings of 50 or under at the moment. Uh, We've been in uh, communication with the city of Suffolk. They know that we still want to have church at the park there. Um, They are willing to allow us to have it there uh, as long as... um, the restrictions that were placed on Hampton Roads by our governor a few weeks ago are removed. Now, uh, the coronavirus numbers in Hampton Roads are doing better. Uh, Here's hoping within the next two weeks he does that. If he does, we're going to have church at the park at the park. If not, we're going to have church at the park in our field right out here. As long as the weather is good, we're doing church outside that day um, one way or another. So we say that for those of you that are joining us online right now because we know some of you are looking forward to, th- to that day because that's going to be your first day to be able to come back since coronavirus and be able to worship with us uh, because you're not yet ready to be inside, but you are more comfortable with us being outside. So we are going to do it outside on that day one way or another. Uh, hopefully by next Sunday, we'll be able to tell you definitively what that's going to be, whether it'll be at Bennett's Creek Park or it will be in our own uh, field. But let's just pray that uh, the governor will ease those restrictions on us and we'll be able to uh, have that in uh, two weeks' time. I invite you now to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, reading down through verse 8 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore them, or they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only, was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
Let's pray together. Father, we do begin our time praying uh, again for uh, the state that we find ourselves in our world, this pandemic that uh, has cost uh, hundreds of thousands of people their earthly lives and we recognize uh, is still ravaging many places around our world. Uh, but we do come to you asking for our, uh, uh, for our need now, and that is that we would love the opportunity to worship publicly outside on, uh, in our community in two weeks. Uh, so, Father, we join together and pray that uh, we would be able uh, to do so. And as we turn now to this text, Father, I pray that you will help me to be clear, uh, to communicate biblical truth, the truth, uh, in the midst of one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible. Help us, God, to not lose sight of meaning. Let us not get lost in the debate of what one thing means or another. Let us not miss the forest for the trees. Open our eyes, God. Let us see the gravity of the situation of ancient days as sin spread in the world. And let us see the gravity in our own day as sin continues to ravage humanity. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled, The Proliferation of of sin. And that is the intent of these eight verses, particularly the first seven with verse eight providing the grace. So again, we will see the same pattern that we have previously seen in earlier chapters in Genesis and we will continue to see uh, in later chapters and that is uh, sin, judgment, and grace. And we will trace those three things this morning here in these eight verses. The point being that sin becomes a pandemic in the ancient world. That around the world, not just in individual cases, while we know the truth is that all since Adam have sinned, this is the first instance where an entire group of people are said to have sinned instead of one person sinning like Adam and Eve or Cain or Lamech, his descendant. Now we have an entire group of people being attributed to sin, as we see wickedness, the passage will tell us, spread throughout the world. One of the things I was not prepared for in pastoral ministry was the variety of questions that pastors get. Now, having served in ministry now for two decades, uh, I, I've become pretty proficient, I'll at least say that, at answering questions on the spot. They don't have a course in seminary, by the way, on pandemics, number one, but they also don't have a course in seminary uh, on the questions that people are going to ask you just randomly in the hallway right before you preach, although they should. Uh, it would have been helpful to know uh, what I needed to be prepared for as I entered ministry, particularly the number of years that I spent in student ministry, because teenagers are always finding just random stuff in the Bible that they want to ask questions about as if it's a matter of life and death in that moment. 
But here's what I've found, both with students and with uh, adults as I've pastored here for the last five years, is most of these questions can be easily put into just a few basic categories. As far as biblical questions go, uh, people either ask questions about the very beginning of the Bible, the first couple of chapters that we've covered over the last several weeks, uh, the end of the Bible, all of Revelation, A few uh, doctrinal positions that require a nuanced mind, for for instance, things like balancing the sovereignty of God and the free agency of man, particularly as it relates to the question of evil or salvation, and Genesis 6. People love asking questions about Genesis 6. And it's not just one question. It's not just that these eight verses contain one really interesting question that people want to know the answer to, but this this passage contains four. Who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? Who in the world are the Nephilim and why do they matter? What does God mean when he says, my spirit will not abide with man forever? And then the one that I love the most actually is, does God actually repent Because this passage says that God is sorry for something and that doesn't really fit within the mold of how we often think about God. So yes, this morning, as uh, I said at the beginning, we're going to slow down. In my original sermon plan, I was going to preach all of chapter six together and more recently made a change because I want to be able to sit in these verses for a moment and I want us to be able to think about some of these questions and possibly provide some some a bit of clarity to the muddy water. Nobody's walking out of here convinced of uh, the answers to some of these questions today, or at least a couple of them in particular. However, the point remains. And while you may be sitting up a little straighter in your seat and may possibly waiting in this series in Genesis for me to get to chapter six so I'd answer some of these questions for you, please do not Miss the forest for the trees. The point of the passage is the proliferation of sin, that wickedness spread. The author here of Genesis just happens to tell us that point in the midst of a story that we are so far removed from in our own thinking about the world and how things work that maybe we get so focused on answering those questions that we miss the main point. So let's begin. The wickedness of man spreads. Verses one and two. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So verse 1 establishes the setting of this narrative for us, and that is that now mankind is spreading throughout what would be the known world at the time. We're still not talking about a worldwide spread of man because this is uh, ancient history, uh, but that mankind was beginning to spread uh, across the known world, across the fertile crescent, Mesopotamia. We're, we're seeing now civilization begin to spread out and develop. And daughters were born to them as would be necessary for procreation and the spread of mankind. So that is our setting. Then verse 2. The, daughter, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. 
Now, the question is, who, the primary question that so many want to ask is, who is the son, uh, sons of God and whoever you believe the sons of God to be influence who you then believe the daughters of man are? I often don't describe uh, alternative positions to a text in the sermon. Sometimes I'll briefly mention them. Today I'm going to go in a little more detail to help you kind of settle your mind into one of three categories. So there are three primary ways that people think about this question of who is the son of the sons of God and who are the daughters of men. The oldest understanding of this, which was the Jewish position during what's known as the second temple period, uh, so the 400 years before Jesus uh, at, through the first century until uh, Rome destroyed the temple uh, in, in the latter part of the first century, the... the um, nearly exclusive understanding of this is that the sons of God were angels. In this case, fallen angels who had rebelled against God alongside of Satan. There is actually much written during what's known as the intertestamental period, that 300 years or so between the closing of the Old Testament and the, open, and, and the beginning of the New Testament. That's called the intertestamental period. There's a lot written during that day that actually talks about uh, this passage, this, these are not authoritative, inerrant texts like the Bible is, but we can kind of read from those and learn what Jewish people thought about this text. And they uh, almost exclusively believed that what is being described here in Genesis 1 and 2 is uh, interbeing relations, that fallen angels were taken in by the beauty of women and took them as their own in sexual relation. This was actually not only the primary belief of um, Second Temple Judaism, it was the primary belief of early Christianity, that during the apostolic age, as well as the early church fathers, so we're thinking maybe the first 200 years of Christianity, this is the primary way that people viewed this text, and some of those have written about that, and we can still read from them today. In this instance, if that is what is being described here in Genesis 1 and 2, then the sin is unnatural relations among kinds. That God had made each according to his own kind, and that each kind were supposed to reproduce within that kind, and that is certainly would not be the case if fallen angels are reproducing uh, with woman. So that's number one. The second is post-temple Judaism. So after the destruction of the temple, uh, as the Jews are spread out around the world, up even through today, uh, there has become a, there's, there's developed an alternative explanation for these two verses and who the sons of God and the daughter of men is within Judaism. And that is that what is established here is a pre-flood royal line that the sons of God borrowing from uh, description of the line of David being described as sons of God. And I didn't mention this in the first one, that most often when we see the term sons of God in the Old Testament, it is describing angelic or spiritual beings, all right? So consider like the beginning of Job as well as other places, that that's most often what's being described. But occasionally sons of God are describing the line of David. And so what many uh, Jews after the destruction of the temple, even through the day, today would say that is being described in Genesis 1 is 
uh, is a royal line, a pre-flood royal line. And the sin is polygamy, that they were seeing beautiful women and that they were taking beautiful women into their harem. Some even attribute rape here to Genesis 1 and 2. That they were taking by force any who they wanted to be their wives. And so the sin of Lamech that we saw last week where he broke the one man, one woman covenant of marriage for the first time, that that continues here into Genesis chapter 6. Then we have the post-early church Christian understanding. So for most of Christian history, a very simple explanation arose, and it became the dominant opinion, particularly during the Reformation, uh, through even just the last few decades. And that's this, that the sons of God, going back one chapter, are the, those who are in the line of Seth. You've likely heard it described in this way. And that the daughters of men are those who are in the line of Cain. And the sin is that God's chosen people were marrying outside of their line. That those who grace and faith were being passed on from one generation to the next in the line of Seth were going outside of that line. Basically, they were marrying people who were not of the faith. They were, to borrow from a New Testament phrase, unequally yoking themselves to a non-believer, to someone who would be worshiping false gods during that time. And that has been the dominant Christian opinion. And if I will tell you honestly, as I was approaching this text, that was the way I was going to preach it. And then I began to read. <laughs> and I began to read some more and more because that, here's, here's what is appealing to me of that, about that text. Here's what may be appealing to you. Number one, it's the least mystical explanation, Right? I don't have to some kind of I don't have to create some kind of category in which angels and humans can copulate, okay? Which is a somewhat difficult category for modern people to develop. The other reason that I, I, I have in just my development or my thought process of, of this text and have actually answered this question this way is because of a basic principle of biblical interpretation. Here's a basic principle of biblical interpretation. You ready? Context is king. That the best way to know what a hard text is saying is to look at what the other text around it is saying and draw meaning from that context. And so if we just stay really local to chapter six and what precedes chapter six is this description of the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And so we just carry the line of Cain and the line of Seth over into our very modern minds that don't have a category for angel and human relations. We just say that makes a whole lot of sense. The problem is nowhere is the line of Seth called the sons of God. Nowhere. Any, in anywhere in scripture. Um, and it seems as if the ancients would have, the ancient people that this was written for and to would have had a category different than we do. And so many modern scholars within the last several decades have actually returned to the ancient position, to that that, that, that Israel during the second temple period and that early Christians held and just say, well, we don't fully understand how this would happen, the most likely scenario of what is being described here in Genesis 6 is fallen angels having sexual relations with the daughters of men. 
One modern scholar, very well respected in the Old Testament, said it like this. While we may, have, we may find it difficult to believe this, if we are going to attribute God being able to take on human form and being born of a virgin, which we would fully affirm, then we ought to also be able to find a category that this would be true. But again, don't miss the forest for the trees. In all cases, whichever one of these you land on, that these, are, that, that, that these are fallen angels, that this is the line of Seth, or that this is some kind of uh, pre-flood royal line, in all three cases, the main subject is sin. Notice the words that are used here. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took them as their wives. That word that is attractive, when I tell you this, it's going to make sense to you. That word that's used as attractive there is the same word that God in Genesis 1 used to say that his creation was good. And it was the same word that is used when, when Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was good. So the same thing that Eve does, she saw the tree that it was good and she took of it, is the same exact thing that happens here. Genesis 6 mirrors Genesis 3, saw, good, and take, representing sin. The subject here, regardless of who these people are, and we won't know until we get to heaven, okay? You can have a defined opinion, and that can be great. This is certainly third, third order. This is, this is not going to divide us, and God will instruct us in heaven one day of what the truth was. But the meaning remains the same, that the people sinned. That an entire group of people, that we're not attributing sin just to Adam and Eve and Cain and Lamech, that now the whole world has sinned. And if things weren't already difficult enough here in these first two verses, we're going to skip verse 3 for a moment and go to verse 4, which also has some difficulty to it. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So that gives us our second question. Well, who in the world are these people? People love to ask about the Nephilim. And one of the things people love to ask about the Nephilim is, how did the Nephilim survive the flood? Because the Nephilim are only mentioned in two places in Scripture, one here in Genesis chapter 6, the other uh, in Numbers 13. Numbers 13 happening after the flood, Genesis 6 happening before the flood, and apparently these people survived. Well, not necessarily. First, we have to ask the question, who in the world is this? Well, the word Nephilim literally means fallen ones. So there was a group of people that uh, Moses writing this to ancient Israel attributes as fallen ones. So this literally reads, in those days were the fallen ones. And then it puts it into context when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So in that same time period, as People spread across the land, so said spreads sin. And as people and sin spread across the land, there developed a group of people known as the Nephilim. Now, the end of that verse says, These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, many attribute these men to being giants. Have you ever heard that the Nephilim were giants? Do you want to know why you think the Nephilim are giants? It's not because that's what the word actually means. The word means fallen one. It's because of what happens in Numbers 13. 
Now, we're not going to read Numbers 13, but I can just tell you the story really quickly. In Numbers 13, the people that Moses is actually writing Genesis to are at the end of their trek, or what should have been the end of their trek, to the promised land out of Egypt. And they send in 12 spies. And those 12 spies, they go into the promised land, and they come back across the Jordan, they come to the people of God and to Moses. And 10 of the 12 say this, yes, the land is great, but man, there are there are giants in the land, and they attribute them to the Nephilim. They even say this, they make us look like grasshoppers compared to them. So we take men who are, not, who are cowards and not wanting to follow God at their word and trying to scare people into believing that there are giants in the land, all right, and we take that, what they say, and apply it back into Genesis 6 and say that these then must be giants because that's what these 10 spies said in Numbers 13, well, that doesn't have to be true. We don't have to take those guys at their word. They were trying to convince the people not to take the land as they should have. So the Nephilim don't have to be giants. Maybe they were. The, the, the word that uh, Jews used when they translated the Hebrew into the Greek Old Testament, they used the word that we derive our word giant from. But it doesn't mean that they were Here's who the Nephilim, here's who from this text we can know the Nephilim were. The Nephilim were men of renown. That's who they were. They were men who had made, in, in a literal translation, it would say this. These were men, fallen ones, who had made a great name for themselves. Now, it also doesn't attribute them to being the sons and daughters of those who had, uh, of, of that relationship in Genesis, or in Genesis 6, 1 and 2. It doesn't necessarily have to be the product of that unholy union, whatever that uh, unholy union was. These were simply men who had made a great name for themselves, which speaks to the point of the passage. This is what sinful man does. We've already seen sinful man try to do this once, and we're going to see it again post-flood. In Genesis 4, 17, that we considered last week, we saw Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. What does Cain, the sinful line, the line of judgment, do? He names a city after his son, exalting his son, trying to make a great name for himself. Post-flood, what do the generations do in Genesis 11? We read this, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What Cain does with his son in Genesis 4 and what the post-flood people do at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is exactly what these men had done here in Genesis 6. They had made a great name for themselves. This is the outcome of sin. The outcome of sin is to seek to make a name for oneself instead of making much of God. Sin seeks to glorify man instead of glorifying God. And so we can somewhat demystify Genesis 6, regardless of who you think the sons of God and the daughter of men are, regardless of who you think the Nephilim are, whether they're giants or not, we can demystify it some if we will just stay focused on the point And that is that sin had spread widely and that the focus of man was no longer on glorifying God, it was on glorifying himself. 
And then we see that God observes this. Man's wickedness grieves the heart of God and demands his judgment. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now stop there for a moment. And notice something, this isn't the point, it's somewhat tangential to the point, but I think it's relevant for us. Wickedness cannot be hidden from God. We like to think that we can hide our sin. We don't want to talk about sin with people, even though the Bible encourages us within the community of faith to confess our sins one to another. Even though it, it's, we're designed to be in the kind of relationship where we, we will confess our sins and, and talk about our struggles so that we can pray for one another, so we can forgive one another, so we can help one another along in our walk with Christ. And as we strive to be like him and put off sin and put on his righteousness. But that's not the way we so often act. The way we so often act is we, we bury our sin deep. We, we hide our sin. We do exactly what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. What did they do in Genesis 3 after they sinned? They recognized their nakedness, which represented their shame and guilt, and they went and hid. They fashioned for themselves a basic covering, and they go and hide from God as if that's possible. Listen, no one else may see it, but the Lord does. And here in ancient days, the Lord saw the wickedness of man because it cannot be hidden from God. He looked into the intention of man's heart and saw that it was continually on evil. That the desire of man was to exalt himself. And verse 6 tells us the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Now let's just take the end of that verse before the beginning because the end is a little easier for us uh, to wrap our minds around. It grieved God. The wickedness of man, and I know I've said this before uh, in sermons, but it's the phrase we use in our house. The wickedness of man made God's heart sad. That it was, it was grievous to God that the crowning work of his creation, we're only in Genesis 6. We've not gotten that far away from creation that God had made man and woman as the crowning work of his creation in his own image to represent him in this world. And yet now his heart is continually on evil and God's heart, we are told, is grieved by this. But then that third question so often asked, the Lord regretted that he made man on earth? That word regretted can be translated repented. What is this saying about God? What is this telling us about God? Was God taken by surprise in Genesis 6 when man sinned? Did God, did this thing get out of control? Because we could read this in that way. We could read this in such a way that, that God happened to look down on earth and go, oh gosh, what happened here? <laughs> I, I, I stepped away for one moment. Now everything's, you know, Gone bad. That's not what happened here. God wasn't taken by surprise. God's not even regretting in the same way that we regret. Know this. God is, I'm going to use a theology word here, immutable. Immutable means unchanging. Even in his emotions. God, the Bible tells us, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that will not ever change. 
So how are we to take verse 6 and also a later verse in here, verse 7, that's going to talk to us about God changing and, and thinking about things differently in his heart and even in his emotions? Well, let's explore this for a moment. Know this, God does not change. And in Numbers 23, 19, we're told this under no uncertain terms. It says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said... And will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? God is not like a man that that new information causes him to change his mind. It does for us, which by the way, in humanity, the ability to take in new information, evaluate what you believe previous about that information, and to possibly change your opinion is actually a good thing. It's something people in our culture could learn to do a little bit better, okay? We could evaluate changes in our world and say, you know what? Now with that new information, I think this is a better course. God doesn't do that though because God sees all time equally. God knows all things and God is completely unchanging. And that's what we see here in Numbers, that God is not like man. Man changes his mind, God does not. Now, we also see this same kind of thing happen in another story in Scripture. And in, it, within that one narrative account, we have both God changing his mind and instruction that God does not change his mind. So let's look at that. It's in 1 Samuel 15. This is when Saul, the first king of Israel, had sinned against the Lord. And he, God is sending Samuel to pronounce judgment upon Saul. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So here's what we see in verses 10 and 11 of 1 Samuel 15. The same thing that we see in Genesis 6, that God has repented, that God has changed his mind about something. Then we get down to verse 28 of 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to him, he's now talking to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a uh, a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. So here contained within this same story is God saying that he regrets or repents and God And then Samuel professing truth that God does not regret or repent or change his mind. So what's actually happening? What's happening here is the same thing that's happening in Genesis 6. The repentance of God is him expressing a different attitude or action within time. Remember, God sees all time equally and God is unchanging. So this isn't. God being surprised because he learned new information and then adapting to that new information with some new attitude or action. It is God expressing a new attitude or action in that moment in time. Why would he do that? It is because that new attitude or action reveals to man something better about God's character in relation to the event that is happening. So let's... God has always, always been wrathful against sin. Always. And and I'm not talking about from the beginning of like the Bible. I'm talking about for eternity past 
in all time, in all directions, God has always viewed sin, disobedience, missing his righteousness with wrath. It has always grieved his heart. It's just now that it has spread, God turns and shows that character towards us so we can see it. Basically, here's what's happening. The author of scripture at times will tell us that God changes in a way to show us better a characteristic of God so that we can understand better God himself. And they use human terms because that's how we understand the best. So here, the Bible tells us that God changes his mind and we can say, yes, God, God, God regrets, repents, changes. All of these are the same thing. That God does this because the scripture says that he does it, but he doesn't do it in the way that a man would do it. He does it in a way that only God can, just by revealing a different aspect of himself to us. And then this passage pronounced two judgments. One, we'll go back to verse three to see. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Now this leads us to that fourth question. What does it mean that his spirit shall not abide for man forever? Is there a time that God's going to take his spirit? This is not talking about the spirit of God as in the Holy Spirit. This is talking about the life-giving spirit that God breathed into Adam, creating him. And what we've seen in the previous chapters is that man lived uh, to great ages, but no longer will that be true. So God limits his life on earth, this earthly life to 120 years. This will be gradually applied post-flood to the point that no one, long life past 120 years will, will eventually not be attributed to anyone. Here's the way that I see this. When we see this within the context of, of those verses there at the beginning, God is limiting the amount of time that man will have to make a great name for himself. Then we get to the Second judgment, verse seven. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. There we see it again, sorry. This, this idea of God repenting of something, expressing an emotion in the midst of great judgment that God is bringing. So we see sin and we see judgment here. The second judgment that God is going to send the flood and we will spend a few weeks considering the flood together uh, in the next few Sundays. Ultimately, God's judgment here against this proliferation of sin is that he will decreate that which he created. What God declares here in verse 7 uh, uses language from chapter 1 where God is creating. And so God will decreate. The judgment of God against sin is great that he will destroy his creation. But sin, judgment, grace, in the midst of great wickedness, Noah finds favor with God. Out of all of this, our interest so much lies on the sons of God and the Nephilim and God repenting. But notice something for a moment. The thing that should make our heart most joyful is verse eight. The thing that should be the most challenging to us and the way we live is verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now we're gonna see a whole lot more about Noah. Noah's already mentioned in the previous chapter uh, when, when he was born and his father named him. 
So we've seen Noah, already mentioned, we're gonna get more of Noah's story and here's what we'll find out, Noah wasn't perfect, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of the proliferation and the great spread of wickedness around the world, Noah alone found favor. In Hebrews 11, which we leaned on heavily last week, we see again Noah mentioned in verse seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen and reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Know this, Noah didn't find favor in the eyes of the Lord because he had created some kind of righteousness on his own Just as we saw in previous weeks and we'll continue to see throughout the book of Genesis, the favor of God, that righteousness that Noah had came only by faith. That that is how Noah was able to find favor with God is he believed God. So what? Sin still grieves the heart of God and demands judgment. Now, we'll have two so what's today. We don't, I try not to do that, but the sentence got too long, so let's just do it in two parts. We need to recognize that just as in the ancient world, sin grieved the heart of God and demanded judgment, today sin still grieves the heart of God and demands judgment. We go to the New Testament where the apostle Paul writes about sin and its prevalence in our world, and he says, but understand this, this is in 2 Timothy 3, that in the last days there will come time of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather lovers than God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, I have seen that passage quoted more often in the last 12 to 18 months than maybe I ever have in my life. People look around our world today, they look around at what's going on, they're like, oh, this is it, man. This is the last days because all of this is true now. You know, you wanna know something? You ready for it? When, if we have our Pauline theology right, then we understand this. Paul thought he was living in the last days too. So Paul was actually looking around his world and describing what he saw which is why that passage ends, avoid such people. You see, if Paul wasn't warning Timothy about something that was present, he wouldn't need to tell him to avoid them. But they were present in Paul's day. You wanna know when else they were in present? They were present in Noah's day. You see, wickedness has spread around our world since the fall. It, chapter six just shows us that spread and it has stayed since then. We live in the last days. But it's not the last days because all of a sudden things have gotten worse. Things have always been bad. Yes, these things are true about our world today. But they were true about Paul's and they're true about Noah and they will be true until Christ returns. But mark this, judgment is coming. Jesus says in Matthew 24, when he talks about the final judgment, he looks back to the the judgment in the days of Noah. And he says, for as were the the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be, so will be the coming of the son of man. Listen, folks, judgment is coming. We, We don't need to make too much out of what's happening in our world today. 
It's impossible to scroll through social media for just four or five minutes, at least it is for me, to scroll four or five minutes without somebody else taking something that's happening in our world out of context and saying, oh, look, it's the end of the world because there's two hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, stop it with that. Or taking something else that's happening in our world, some other great sin that's happening, and say, look, just how bad sin is now. It's so much worse than it's ever been. No, it hadn't. Millennia ago, it was terrible still terrible today. A sin has spread. But no, just as judgment was coming in the day of Noah, judgment is coming today as well. We do not know when it will be. Many will be caught unaware, but it is coming. Second, by faith, we find favor with God in a wicked world. Yes, our world was wicked. Yes, Noah's was too. But Noah found favor with God by faith. And we too can find favor with God by faith. Now, again, back in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's described this terrible, wicked world to Timothy and said, don't have anything to do with them. And then he's going to give him the answer later in that chapter. Look at what he says. But as for you, so the world's going to act like that, Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. In Christ Jesus. You see, the answer for Noah was faith. The answer that Paul gave to Timothy was faith. The answer that we, followers of Jesus, must stand on today in the wickedness of our world is faith. Folks, there's not a politician in this land that'll save you. It's just not. Stop putting your faith in one. Either side, not gonna say, they're not going to remove wickedness from this world. There, there's not any worldly system ever that will save you. You yourself can't save you. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be able to try hard enough. But by faith that is taught to us, Paul says, through the sacred writings, which is the scripture, the word of God, we can believe and know that God has made a way for us to find favor with him through Jesus Christ. That's the free offer to you today. If you have lived as a part of this wicked world, know this, judgment is coming, but Jesus has provided a way for you to escape the judgment of God by taking it on himself on the cross. If you're in this room right now or you're watching this with us online and you've participated in the wickedness of the world and sought to make much of yourself, but today hear this good news that Jesus died in your place. All you must do is come to him in faith. That's all you have to do. It's what Noah did. He believed by faith. That's what Paul told Timothy to do, believe by faith. And it's what we're encouraged to do today. Believe by faith and we can find favor with God. You see, church family, we don't have to live in the wickedness of this world. We don't have to take part in the wickedness of this world. We don't have to excuse the wickedness of this world and just say, well, it's raging so much around me that I'll just dabble in it here and there. No, no, no. We are able by faith to find favor with God. Oh, I am so grateful for Genesis 6, 8. That as sin spread, one man had faith. Let's pray together. Father, help us in our faith, we pray. Help us because we are weak 
and we are prone to hand-wringing, and we are prone to giving in to wickedness around us, and we're prone to, to embracing evil, which uh, embracing as good evil. We're, we're so in our flesh weak, but you and your spirit are strong. So help us now. I pray, God, for that person who would be convicted of their sins and repent today. Turn to you by faith alone find favor with you through the work of Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.